Thomas Green with Ethical Marketing Service. On the podcast today, we have James Rousseau Sr. James, welcome. Thank you, Thomas, for having me. I appreciate it. It is my pleasure. Would you like to take a moment and tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure, sure. I'm the CEO of our organization called The CoreLink Solution. We focus on uh, empowering people to reach their potential through learning and uh, cultural development. Well, the, the conversation today is going to be around the power of purpose. Are you happy to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. What does it mean to you, the power of purpose? Well, I think, you know, I really believe we're all purposed to do something, right? I think we're all given uh, unique gifts and talents, and those things are like superpowers. And I always liken it to the, uh, the superhero story, particularly when I'm talking to youth. You know, when you talk to youth, particularly youth that are um, not necessarily encouraged and struggling to figure out where they are, I start with the superhero story and you ask them, you go, you know, um, you ever know the superheroes have a, a similar story? And they go, well, what do you mean? I said, well, tell me who your superhero is. And, you know, they name off Batman, Superman, et cetera. And you go, well, let's walk through what happens. They typically stumble onto their superpower, right? So they figure out they could punch through a wall. They can kick down, you know, doors and things like that. They can maybe fly. And then they goof around with those superpowers. And then they go, wow, this is interesting. Uh, they have a friend who they play around with, but then they um, they find out their superpowers are given to them for a purpose, right? To solve a huge macro issue, right? So cure the world's ills, if you will. But then they didn't have to hone those superpowers, right? Uh, and then the av adversary shows up and they and their coach, if you want to call them, or their guide or their Yoda, work through honing those gifts and talents in order to overcome the adversary and cure the world's ills, right? And that's the superhero story over and over and over again. But it starts with the unique gifts and talents. So the recognition of those um, starts starts there uh, with the recognition of those, and that comes back to your purpose. So do you encourage people to um, think of their story in that format? I do, I, I honestly do, because I think uh, particularly now, uh, with the advent of social media, which is, by the way, a good thing used in the right, you know, as all tools were used appropriately. Uh, it's so easy to look to the left and right and what's happening in other spaces and feel that you are not those things that you may not measure up. But those are not necessarily the utilization of the superpowers that you have. And so you can do by comparison, you could do a disservice to yourself and not focus on what your purpose to do. Do you like and have you heard of... Um be the hero in your own movie. I have not heard that, but that totally makes sense. I've not heard that. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those sort of throwaway lines that, um, you know, you should uh, try and engineer your life so that you kind of feel that way and your, yeah. your life's a movie and you're trying to um, make it an interesting story and be the hero in it. Makes total sense. Absolutely. So how did you, um, I've, like I said to you before, I've done a little bit of prep in about what you do. Um, and I, I kind of like to, um, whether right or wrong, I kind of like to categorize people in my mind. And uh, mm. you strike me as like a business guy. You're a um, way to improve businesses. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm interested to know how you got into the industry you're in now, what, what that story was. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. I guess the industry I'm in now is nonprofit, but I spend uh, half my time running our nonprofit and I spend the other half of my time doing executive coaching and consulting and uh, some board directorship. And uh, the long and short of it is I spent you know, over 20 years in, in a professional career in corporations, uh, namely JPMorgan Chase, Allstate Insurance Company and, Le and Legal Shield. 
and progressive series of roles, right? Running, uh, starting on the HR side of the house. So, you know, more of a staff roles, finance and HR, and then into uh, the revenue side of the house and line roles in the credit card business, insurance business, and then uh, legal services. And doing those progressions, um, I, I think what hit me early on is this idea of, you know, people, people believing that you're special, right? Some people will say you're special. I remember I was young at JP Morgan Chase and I got promoted to senior vice president. And I was one of the younger, if not one of the young guests, senior vice presidents at that time. And uh, people just felt like you're special. And uh, it never left me coming from a neighborhood I came from in Philadelphia, North Philadelphia, more specifically Germantown area, where there still today is a major disparity in terms of the education system relative to what we would expect, right? Uh, and special is not scalable in my mind. So as I kept, kept progressing my career, one of the things that dawned on me was I wanted to, one, try to get to the right place in organizations where I could make a systemic change and really try to change policies, procedures, and systems to benefit more folks. So I got more involved in diversity councils and mentorship and sponsorship programs and things such as that. But then you get to a point, you go, you know, that's great here. And it even is some external work happening because of that with organizations we make partnership with. But I believe I need to take that work external, right? To, to really do a, to more good, if you will. And that's what led me to uh, really want to step out and run our nonprofit, which we had started in early 2000s. And so I exited the corporate world in 2018 to do just that. And what's your charity? It's called the, the CoreLink Solution. Okay. And um, what's the cause? Ed education. Really focused on education. Again, learning and I say learning and cultural development. So we do learning programs focused on just that, helping people find their passion and purpose and then giving them a program to, to reach that through six steps, as well as then that sixth and final step is the power of retention by teaching someone else to do the exact same thing uh, that that participant does that. And is there, there's a program for adults and a program for youth. And right now we're taking that program out to uh, youth organizations, be it schools, civic organizations, et cetera. And what's your, um, what would be like the best outcome for you? If you could like magic wand um, and sort of get your charity out to as many people as you wanted, what would it look like? Well, I think it would look like something that's deployed in, in uh, schools, right? So schools have had a tremendous drop in after school programs, but when they've tested um, the economics and the outcomes, right? So if you look at a logic model and think of things that start as early as better attendance, uh, better study, hours for, for uh, youth. And then you look at the opposite, the, the long range end of high school graduation rates, competency scores in math, reading and science. When you add after school programs, you see those things have a tremendous lift. However, there's not enough money for after school programs at scale. So one, this to be used as a program that helps fill that gap. Right now we offer it uh, without charge, but I think we could do it in such a way with organizations that they will find this tremendously tremendous value uh, when we add on the fees associated with it. I think secondarily um, to be used um, at churches and other local organizations, right? I think churches and uh, whatever the faith is, are the cornerstones in communities. They're places where people huddle, they gather as a community, they learn together. Uh, and then thirdly, that we get further down in the pipeline to our youth, and that we help organizations see that connective tissue. If you look at most businesses today, um, they would tell you they're tapped out in terms of college talent, in terms of reaching into colleges and universities. And they're starting to think about how they reach further down in high school talent, right? I personally believe and have seen through conversations with others that that talent pipeline is truly becoming thinner as you go further down. So how do we 
connect that, right? By developing talent further down the pipeline, how do we take organizations desire to make social impact and uh, beyond writing a check and beyond Habitat to Humanity and other popular charities, do things where we help bring folks together. So you take a CFO of an organization and he thinks about his generational successor, right? Um, one generation, two generations behind. How do you create that connection now and use a program like this, right, as an accelerant to that relationship? So is it, um, what would be the before and after for someone who, let's say they didn't have much education, they took your course, what would it look like after they finished? Well, one, they would have a, a, a roadmap in front of them that, uh, one, they would be have an articulation of their purpose, right? So they have written words on the page that starts with, wow, I've, I've got my talents and my gifts here, things that I didn't realize before that I naturally do easily. And uh, they're here. And if I'm, wow, if I do them easily without much effort and I start to put effort into them, here's what that could look like. Uh, two, here's what I want to see, right? Here's my vision for my life. Three, here are the goals, right? So always think of goals as the stepping stones across the river to getting to your vision. And then four, here's my roadmap and plan of how I'm going to do it. My learning plan, my people plan, including mentors and sponsors that may want to help me. Uh, and then last but not least, here's how I'm going to keep this in action uh, going forward. And here's how I'm going to be accountable and own this for myself, not, not just by myself, right? But with a tribe of people, how I'm going to create uh, a tribe that I co-labor with, if you will. Yeah, I sort of, um, I understand, well, I, I think I understand what you're going for because a lot of problems maybe come from people having no purpose. So yeah. you're sort of helping them have that purpose of life. Is that about right? Absolutely. And I think the, the biggest thing, Thomas, if you ask me to boil it down to, to one word, uh, I'd say self-efficacy, right? When, when a person believes that they can achieve something and they see what that something is, the tenaciousness they have, right? The um, ability to go, I, I call it the Charles Barkley <laughs> attitude he used to have when he said, I'll go over you, under you, through you, around you, but I'm going to get to the basket. When that attitude comes into play because you see what's possible and you believe it's doable, uh, it's hard to stop somebody from, from getting to their potential at that point. Mm. Well, congratulations on putting that together. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you did mention something that I, I did want to touch upon, which is um, the JP Morgan uh, special comment. Um, do you think, what, what's your analysis of that particular scenario? Because part of me thinks, um, you know, maybe you did have a, a talent for it, which would have been recognized regardless, or perhaps it was just good people around you that hmm. were willing to offer you the help. What, what's your take on it? Well, I, and it wasn't just there. I mentioned that there's a part of that particular um, moment, right? I mean, promote it. Uh, but I think, uh, wow, what's the analysis of that? One, you know, I was uh, hardworking and I've had great mentors almost all my life uh, because I, I think two reasons. One, I was willing to work hard and two, I was willing to ask for help. So, you know, my earliest job was 14 years old at a hardware store around the corner for me. I Trust me, I didn't want the job. It was my mother got tired of funding my, what she would call my hobbies that I was start and stop without <laughs> a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of commitment. So, you know, I had this hobby. I wanted to be a DJ. I wanted some turntables. She said, I absolutely not. I am not funding that hobby. Go figure it out. Go get a job, do something. And I went to the girls and boys club and they signed me to this summer job at the hardware store. And this guy named Joe Jankowski took me under his wing and Thomas, what should have been just a summer job where I learned maybe how to cut some keys and 
you know, fill the stock the shelves. He taught me how to run the store. I mean, I would ask him questions, Joe, how do you do this? How do you take inventory? How do you go refill the inventory? How do you fix windows, screens? Anything I asked him, he would just just teach me and just start taking me around with him. Uh, When I finished the summer job, went back to high school, uh, he said, you want to work after school? Absolutely. Right. And then I think a year later, he made me the assistant manager, gave me keys to the store, let me open up the store by myself on Saturdays. And it just continued that kind of relationship. And so um, progressing from there, I think I I got very used to asking for help, part one, and mentorship, and then asking, can I do more? If I get the the regular part of the job done, uh, I thrive on a learning curve. I want to learn what's next. How can I take on more? So you're naturally inquisitive, would you say? I think so. Absolutely. And you, um, your first job was there was actually someone who was willing to reward that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Interesting. But the, um, how did you go from the hardware store to what was your next kind of opportunity after that? You know, my next opportunity after that, uh, unfortunately, I had a bad uh, episode with my father. He, uh, he succumbed to drugs. He passed away. We had a you know, real bad episode there. Um, but I went to Temple University that lasted about two, three days because financial aid fell through. Uh, and then I went to computer school to be a programmer, but decided not to. And during that time, I worked at uh, a couple of places in the mall in downtown Philadelphia and then worked at a company called Today's Man, which is a clothing store that is no longer in business. I think most of the locations have turned just like a men's warehouse or K&G and things like that. But at the time, Today's Man was a very large men's retailer uh, on the East Coast, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, and uh, in New York. And uh, I was working in the store of security. And same thing, I'm walking the store, I'm figuring out different things. And uh, as the head of security for all the stores, there's probably about 20 stores at the time came through, he's just noticed, I didn't just stand at the stand all day, I would walk the store. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm walking the stores. I think, I think certain areas are probably a little more higher risk because the tailor clothing and suits. He's like, that's interesting. He says, so you're analyzing <laughs> the security of the store. I said, well, yeah, I just think standing at the stand all day is one thing. It's another thing to kind of walk around and see what's taking place. So he uh, got me into helping open the stores and teaching cashiers how to think about security in the stores. And then uh, one day the head of all stores came in the store, uh, Don uh, Fleming. And Don and I met and he said, Herb told me about you. Walk me around and tell me what you do. And I'm, I just walked around. He said, you know, you should be in corporate. And he moved me to corporate in, in about two weeks and moved me. I got in, I think, an accounts payable first. So I learned accounts payable, then accounts receivable, uh, and then moved into payroll. And that's how my whole, uh, that was my entree into human resources. And once I moved into payroll, uh, I then uh, got interested in human resources and the rest is kind of history from there. Cause I moved from there to a, a company called Wilmington Savings Fund Society in Wilmington, Delaware. And then from there to, um, I did some, uh, consulting for a little while, people soft consulting. And then I moved to chase after that. Another example of you being naturally inquisitive or maybe not naturally, but just looking to solve problems, I suppose. And then someone noticing it and perhaps rewarding you for it. Yeah, Absolutely. And, and standing at the front of a store all day, even with Rockport shoes on, it's just hard. <laughs> you got to move about, you mean? You got to move about. <laughs> so um, tell me about the, um, the JP Morgan interview. How did that go? Were you nervous? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it was interesting. I had uh, accepted a job at uh, ADP at the time. I was Again, I was doing some people soft consulting for a company in New York. Um, I was working with a client, um, I think Nomura Systems at the time, Nomura Securities rather. 
and uh, ADP was looking to launch a PeopleSoft-like system. And so they needed a person that had a product. I had, I had gone, done those interviews, accepted the job, and a woman named Lisa Neil Graves called and said, hey, you know, we're doing this uh, conversion from Genesis to PeopleSoft. Why don't you come talk to me? And I said, no, I just accepted this job at ADP. She said, well, bird in hand, you know, hand in the bush. Why don't you take a train ride and come talk to me? You know, you're in Philly, we're in New York, take a train ride up, you know, we'll cover the train ride, whatever. I don't know if I should do that. She's like, yeah, come on, come talk to me. <laughs> so I went up and uh, talked to her. Brilliant conversation, really enjoyed it. And next thing you know, you know, uh, I meet uh, several other people and I take the job to, to run uh, payroll for uh, Chase. It was pre-Morgan merger. This was January of uh, 2000 or December 2000, because I started January, I guess, first or second of uh, 2000. And uh, yeah, that was just an unbelievable ride because uh, it was a interesting, they were in an interesting transition. It was a team who had been uh, probably in the throes of a bunch of different transitions, quite frankly. Uh, and then the merger started probably six months after that with Morgan. I had never been through a merger before. And so just tons of learning. Tons of money. Yeah. Would you say you're taking big leaps from one thing to the next? Absolutely. Again, I, I thrive on a learning curve. Uh, I love to learn. So absolutely. And um, how does that, I suppose, how does that end for you, the JP Morgan, um, JP Morgan Chase? Well, I did, I did five years in uh, what's called, what was called their HR service delivery. And so I was, I grew from payroll after the Morgan merger, moved my group from uh, New York to Delaware. Uh, my group uh, expanded. I mean, you can imagine what the payroll is like for, you know, a couple hundred thousand people. Uh, my responsibilities grew as my uh, immediate boss resigned, uh, Jennifer Cavazzini. And uh, so she had HR operations and I always said she owned all the pieces from immigration forward through HR records and all those things, probably 11 different functions. And so I grew, I got that team and I had responsibility for about 110 people at that point. And then um, I got promoted a few times and senior vice president. And I also took over our contact centers. So now I owned most of the operational things from immigration through termination in about four different locations from uh, New York, Delaware, Jersey City, and Texas. And then um, some global responsibility as well. We had a global site in India. We're doing some things in the UK and I wanted I rose my hand again and said, hey, can I help with global data management? Like, like I had free time, but uh, <laughs> my team was doing well. And then uh, the Bank One merger happened, which was a, just a, a, a massive merger. Uh, and so we got that done. My team grew to 400 folks, but then we had to take it back down. And and, uh, and so then I, I really wanted to learn how to get on the other side of the ledger. I wanted to learn how to produce revenue. And so I moved over into our card business in 2005, early 2006, it was, and started managing credit card portfolios of all the sports and college teams there and uh, AARP and some other big partners. And uh, probably it was, I guess, 2010, 2011, I got the itch to say, uh, it's great to be as a, a part of a team running a business and portfolio, but maybe I'm, I'm ready to now really own a, a whole business unit, if you will. Um, and uh, Allstate called and said, you know, we need we need to think differently about how we manage our products. We have about 100 products. Our agents to sell three. We're thinking about how do we sell the other 90 plus products and how do we sell them differently? And maybe somebody like you can help us uh, uh, do that as president of the affinity business. And uh, a brilliant guy named Don Belly was the uh, hiring manager and Don and I hit it off and I went to Allstate. So was that like a, a consulting position or was that another move, an improvement? employment move? Another employment move, totally different move. Uh, 
first time we had left Philadelphia, my wife and I are both born, bred Philadelphia. We never saw ourselves moving. So we moved to Chicago or, or Northbrook, Illinois, if you will. And uh, yeah, it, it was just, uh, yeah, un- totally unexpected. But you'd thought about starting your own business before that then? No, you know, we, we, we had started the nonprofit, which I always seen as an after work weekend type thing, right? You know, maybe one day we'll be able to do it, but wasn't, we weren't really sure how. Um, and uh, the Allstate opportunity came and I think it got me thinking about maybe this starts the road to a, a to, to a smart exit, if you will. I'm, I'm fiscally conservative, probably more than you could ever imagine. Uh, and so, you know, this started me thinking about, well, it's, it's one good to, uh, try another business and, and see if I can learn the insurance business Two, uh, it's good to be the president of that business and learn how to be a general manager at that level, right. To think differently about policies and starting something three, it's good to be, and we weren't using this term then I don't believe, but an entrepreneur, right? So if I have entrepreneur itchings, even in the nonprofit world or otherwise, not bad to start a business inside of a $30 billion company, right? It's, it doesn't exist. Um, I think actually sometimes it's harder because the company has its own habits and such, right? And it's so successful already. And now you're saying, well, let me erect this new business inside this company. People are going, well, do we really, you know, I understand that Tom and the executive team think we need that, but you have, a you know, 60,000 other employees going, do we really need that? <laughs> like, you know, what does that mean to us? And now you're, you're also, you know, uh, competing for resources, so on and so forth. So yeah, that was, that was a good, good opportunity as well. So you started uh, a, a new business within, um, you say it was All-Star? All-State, All-State All insurance. Mm-hmm. And how did it go? It went well, you know what? Um, it went well. I would say it was it was a, it was a learning opportunity, right? I didn't know some of the things I didn't know. So one, I would say, one of the biggest lessons learned is understanding alignment throughout the organization for a new initiative such as that. So when you're going through the interview process, you know, you talk to all the people who um, you start with at least the people who are really interested in seeing this happen. So you want to start a new billion dollar target business inside a $30 billion company. And you're talking to, and my God, you talk about a thick interview process. You know, I think the first flight out, you meet with six people. The second one out, you meet with six people. I met with Don in Jersey one time before, then met with him again. Then you go out for a psychological evaluation with the host of actors. That's about a four hour ordeal where they put you in a room and then, you know, you have these actors coming in and out and you know, they want to see how you act in different situations and such. Um, but you don't appreciate the fact that behind that curtain is a, is a whole cadre of people who may or may not be as warm to the idea, quite honestly. Right. And so as you go to start this journey, you, you, you are full on, this is how this will play. Right. So there's a naivete I probably had going into some of it of, okay, I can do this and go full steam ahead. Um, two though, I would say, man, it really helped me build some muscles around, I think, resilience around uh, understanding a different industry. I mean, the insurance industry is is very highly regulated and very, what's the word I would use? Um, set in its ways, right? There were things I was so used to doing in the affinity business and credit card business, such as giving people airline miles or points for buying a product, right? Or using a product and insurance, they called that, they said, well, that's inducement. You can't do that. And I go, well, okay. I just want to give people value for using the product or buying the product. Oh, no, that's illegal. And so 
spending time learning how to make it not illegal, <laughs> right? To turn it, turn it the other way. But that took, you know, six, six to nine months working with our legal team and a host of lawyers going around to all the insurance commissioners. So I think it was good uh, for me in those regards in terms of learning um, some new things relative, again, to governance, uh, instituting new processes, uh, you know, casting vision, but then also, you know, some of the things necessary to really execute that vision. I learned a lot during that process. I can see how um, like you, you're getting experience from all different sizes of businesses. And I, I saw, um, I think it was one of your talks where you're dealing with the different types of numbers. So I think you're referring to like, how do we get, um, I think you, you say billion dollar growth for million dollar companies. I think yes. that's the term that yeah, you use. Yes. And I can see in each step, you're getting a little bit of experience from, from each type of business. Yes. Um, when do you become a speaker? You know, after the book was done. So the book was uh, published in 2014. And as a part of publishing a book, you know, your, your publisher tells you, Hey, you need to get on the speaking circuit. So, you know, if you ever go through a, a book process, you think uh, the, the publishing company is going to do uh, most of the marketing and you quickly learn as you, you do the contract and not so much, you need to do a lot of it yourself. And so that's what happened with speaking. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And how did, how was that process of writing? Your it was good. It was good. You know, and actually it was probably a very, um, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Complimentary transition. So as I moved to legal shield in 2014, so I did, I was at all state from 2011 to the end of 2013. Once again, uh, I get a call from legal shield saying, uh, we have a, a great product. We've got independent sales associates to sell our product, but we also think we can do more from a B2B perspective. We think someone, someone like you can help us again, uh, launch, launch this business in a different way, or, or at least pull it together in a different way. They had parts of the business already, but we need a president to run this broker business was the initial pitch. And as I came and looked at it, I said, well, you, you know, doing the conversations, um, so, wow, I think there's a couple parts you could actually pull together to make this a lot more complimentary and actually say to the marketplace that you want to truly be B2B in all respects. And so, um, and it was private equity. I had never worked with a private equity company before. And uh, I think the other biggest change for me, Thomas was, you know, I had gone from, you know, a trillion dollar company, JP Morgan Chase to a $30 billion plus company at Allstate. And that is, was, a, you know, just under a $500 million company. Right. Uh, and so, you know, some of my friends are going, what, what, what are you doing? Wait, stop. Hold up, <laughs> pump the brakes. What is happening here? Why would you, why would you do this? And what I saw was a couple of things. One, to try to bring the corporate, uh, what's what I'm looking for? The corporate navigation skills and some of that power of uh, resources to bear in a smaller environment, right? So could I take what I learned in the ocean, if you will, and bring it to the, to the lake, right? I don't mean that in a you know a condescending way at all. I mean that in a very powerful way because I think the company had a lot of tools in terms of products, salespeople, so on and so forth. But it was still growing from being founder owned and run, turned over to a private equity company probably four years prior to them talking to me, and now figuring out how they reach the next inflection point. I think part two was I saw the opportunity to you know could I come into a private equity situation and create not only value there, right, for the organization, all of us holistically, but also, quite frankly, an opportunity for myself some years out, I don't know how many years that might be, that helps me live into my purpose as I saw it, right? And, and I think in terms of purpose, 
I underestimated how much of that I would feel inside the company. As I was learning the product and what the organization stood for philosophically, I found a lot of value and fun uh, in working with people there and, and how they um, how they treat people in the market relative to um, selling the product. Well, it's um, really interesting to go back over your story. Um, so thank you for, for that. Oh, absolutely. Do you, have, do you look back on any particular moment and think, um, like connecting the dots, you know, this wouldn't have happened if, um, if this particular thing didn't happen and that was important then, but I didn't think it was important at the time, that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, it was funny. I was, I was, uh, I, I do Peloton most mornings and I was thinking this morning, I don't know why it was a song I was playing or something. And I was thinking about that. Um, you know, I try to think about leader lessons cause I sent out a thought of the day every each morning. And one of the things I was thinking about is as leaders, we have the gift of people that we work with, right? And sometimes we can get um, we can get our in our own heads and believe we have to have the answer, come up with the answer, or be wed to our answer, right? And I think you know, in all state, I didn't repivot as quickly as I could have if I had listened to my folks more, right? There were some folks on my team who. Uh, were saying to me, you know, <clears throat> maybe you should approach this a little bit differently. For example, we, we, you know, the, the, the typical affinity model is you're working, you know, with businesses such as, you know, we had a partnership with United Airlines. The idea was to take that product, uh, insurance product to the market. And if you, you know, buy the product, renew your, your policies, auto, home, life, et cetera, you get United Airlines models, which are one of the most coveted uh, value propositions in the market. And, uh, but the idea to design was not necessarily to include insurance agents, right? The idea was to go direct to consumer. And I had a couple of my team say, you know, you might want to think that through differently. So no, 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 that's the model. That's the way the model works. Next, that's what I agreed to with the executive team. That like, that is the model. And, you know, you look back sometimes ago, why wasn't I a little bit more receptive, right? And slowed down to think through that and, and go in and test those waters a little bit differently. Um, had I done some of those things sooner, could we have gotten traction sooner and had more benefits? So I think that was one of my lessons learned there, right? Listen to the team and, you know, work through those things, joust through those things, right? In a, in a loving way um, to understand, uh, you know, where we have opportunities, right? Um, and, uh, you know, take all that into consideration. It's tricky, isn't it? Because you don't want to be swayed too easily by other people's opinions, but at the same time, you don't want to shut off people's opinions either. So exactly any processes or thoughts around striking the right balance there? Yeah, well, you know, all verse, all voices should be heard, right? Um, I think, you know, I just surveyed some people last week on my email list and uh, always say, I, I want to hear all voices. It doesn't necessarily mean they make it into the final mixer output, right? But I want to hear the voices and give things due consideration. I don't want to over uh, think about it either, right? I want to overthink it, right? But I just want to hear the voices and perspectives to make sure I didn't miss the opportunity of what those perspectives could bring to the table. So to your very good point, um, I don't think you have to belabor them. You just want to make sure you get them on the table and, and give them a chance to, uh, to, to, to come to light. Mm. And uh, sorry, I want to add one more thing to that. I think the, the benefit of when you do that is those people feeling hurt as well and that they 
actively feel heard, right? They're active part of the conversation that you, you say to them, tell me more about that. Let me play that back and make sure I understand it. And even when you don't do necessarily what they um, are advocating for, you're expressing to them why you're moving in another direction, despite what you heard from them, right? And why you're not going with that. That buys a lot, right? People, when you want buy-in from folks, they need to be heard. If you want folks, if you have the rule of, you know, what's said here stays here is one rule, right? Um, but the other rule is we we will work, we will argue all these things out, but we leave the room with one decision and we all have to line up behind that decision. If you really want that to be true, you have to have the voices be heard. Mm. Is that part of your, because um, you do, do you do a, a bit of leadership um, training as well? Uh, more, more executive coaching and consulting every now and then I will do some training, but, but absolutely that is something I, I will talk about within that. Mm. I watched a, um, an interview with you, uh, the football guy, I forget his name. Oh, Brand, Fran Tarkenton? Yeah. We're going to bring out of James Rousseau his great knowledge and experience. And James, thanks Brand. for joining us, buddy. Good to be here. Thank you. Uh, and yeah. that, that, it struck me as like a bit of, um, perhaps it would be executive um, approaching to people management in a way. So mm -hmm. um, I guess that um, that comes in there a little bit. But I do yes. want to um, get your thoughts on perhaps what your, as you mentioned, your course, obviously we don't want to pull too much out because people should take it. But at the same mm -hmm. time, um, what, what would be some nuggets from that that you would want to share with people? From the course? Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, one, starting with your, your natural gifts and talents, we can tend to overlook those, but um, we, I, I do several things within that course to probe, you know, particularly where younger professionals are trying to figure it out. It's amazing how many, uh, folks come out of college and do a couple years of work and go, this is not what I thought it would be. Um, I'm not sure I'm at where I need to be and I can't figure this out. Right. And it's kind of going through this exploratory process to, to, to figure out what's natural for them, what they've been given uh, as gifts and talents and get those on the table. Part one um, is one thing I would point out. Part two is overlaying those with their values, right? Spending time to step back and all of this, Thomas, I would say is under a framework and a discussion of, can we go internal for a while? Can we shut down social, TV, cable, <laughs> email, and go internal, go inside, like all you for a little while. Um, and that's so important. And, and that's a big conversation as well, right? The intrinsic piece, uh, the intrinsic motivation, et cetera. Um, I would say the third thing is, the conversation about relationships and building a network. A lot of times when we think network, I think it's natural to think with and not think depth. And, you know, spending time thinking about the people um, in your network and the depth of those relationships and how you want to take them deeper and uh, have a value exchange, right? Uh, with those folks and have them, again, I use the term co-labor or you may want to say co-journey but do, do life with you as you're going on this journey. Cause this is not a lap or two. This is, this is a journey, mm. right? It's a marathon. The last thing I guess I would say is how you turn this into a lifelong plan, a lifelong learning plan and action plan. What are the things you're going to do? I adopt the 12 week planning principle in this. Uh, I can't think of his name right now, the author. I'd love to give him credit, but his book, 12 week plan was very powerful for me. And I've used it because it's great to put things, put things, take big boulders, if you will, 
of actions or vision points and put them into 12 week sprints. So how do you put these things into these 12 week cycles? You can look for, you know, 12 weeks across and say, these are the definitive things I'm going to do, right. To make sure I get to these goal goals as a part of this vision. Well, thanks for that. Um, that answer. It does make me think about um, with your example, when you, it seemed to me like you were almost testing things that you were and weren't interested in. Like for example, um, going to college and then, um, you know, I weren't, maybe that engaged with that and then you went on to the next thing and you kind of explored and do you think that that's a way of um finding your passion or your purpose absolutely no doubt about it you know i wanted to go to college for communications i want to be a communications major uh at the time in philadelphia my favorite at least one of my favorite djs was doug henderson at wdes i remember left 11th grade or 12th grade our english teacher said you need to write this paper about you know, what you want to do with your life, go try to meet somebody who does it. And I went down to go see Doug Henderson at the radio station. He couldn't have been cooler. I mean, he invited, he set the appointment, let me in. When I came into the studio, he was, he was on air. He was like this, he's like, no, sit, sit, sit over there, you know? And then he uh, spun a record and then talked to me for a second. And then when it record played, he got back on. This is Doug Henderson late afternoon. You know, then he talked to me again. I mean, he was just so good, right? Um, that sealed the deal. I, I wanted to go to college for that. Um, here I am. I'm not going to say how many years later, but let's just say a couple of decades later, I am still desirous of doing some of that work and do it as a part of what we do at the CoreLink Solution, you know, radio communications and things such as that. Um, but in between there, a lot of the things I did, I found to be highly uh, desirable in terms of um, liking those things, you know, finance, I enjoyed it. HR, I enjoyed it. Sales, marketing, uh, product development. Uh, and I think, and, and everyone's different, right? I think some people go hard and deep in one thing. Some people are general managers that go, you know, so some people go 12 feet deep. Some people go three or six feet deep, but go across more, right? And, and there's a variance in between. Um, I'm an interdis interdisciplinary person. I would categorize myself in terms of my skill set. I, I enjoy doing a lot of different things. So it's been very good for me in that regard. That's interesting. Um, I've, I've also uh, seen that you've done a lot of goal-related um, topics. Yes. So, um, you know, perhaps setting and achieving goals. Are you mm -hmm. want to share some thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, I try to keep it simple on goals. I'm a, I'm a fan of using smart goals, specific, measurable, achievable, um, realistic, and time bound. I'm a fan of um, just out of reach, but not out of sight when you're setting them. And so you have something you should be reaching for that makes you stretch a little bit. Um, I always say if you're a runner, it should make you breathe hard. If you're lifting weights, it should make you strain a little bit in the last couple of reps. Um, that pressures yourself, but absent a goal, the mind doesn't focus as much, right? Goals help focus the mind. So I'm just, I'm just a huge advocate of when people say they want to do something, I have a tendency to, to turn and say to them, so let's get specific. What does the, it look like? And by when do you want to achieve it? And that usually starts a good conversation because people go, that's a good point. That's a good question. Let me think about that. Right. And then let's just, and it's, it's helpful time. It just helps the mind focus on, okay, great. So by July 1st, I want to have written the first draft of my book. Okay. Excellent. What kind of book is it? Okay. 
what typically is the norm, you know, what's the norms for that kind of book? You know, how many words is it? Is that, is that where you want to go to? Okay, great. So then what kind of rhythm would you need to have if it's now April 5th or April 6th and you've got eight weeks, how many words do you need to write a week? Okay. How do you want to do that? You're going to write every Saturday, you're going to write every two days, right? So, you know, you know what I mean? By, by setting the, the, the goal and the measurement and when you want to achieve it, um, then you can back into some actions. Hmm. Well, um, uh, there's one thing which I uh, spoke about with a guy named Harrison Tash, and he, he also likes SMART goals. Um, but one of the criticisms um, of SMART goals is the whole achievable, realistic thing. Um, mm-hmm. And his, his or our conversation was that potentially SMART goals could be good for a team. So you, your team members aren't kind of getting disheartened out, uh, about the fact that they're not realistic goals. Um, but then the the other side of that is because um, some people like to set goals that are, you know, lofty goals that are difficult to achieve. What are your thoughts on that part of SMART goals? Meaning that you you may have a risk of achieving them? About the fact that um, if you set them as realistic, so the specific criticism is like we don't want to set people up to be um, average. Got it. What are your thoughts Got on it. that? Yeah, well, my just like I said, they should be just out of reach and not out of sight, right? So if last year, you know, I, we would do this goal setting uh, conversation with, with my team and then I would do it a lot of times with large sales teams, right? That didn't report to me, but I was responsible for helping them drive uh, their efforts. And I would say, well, look, if you, if you did 100 sales last year, to say this year you're going to do 101 is not much of a stretch. Um, you probably could do that doing what you did last year and maybe you know, you could just luck up into that, right? What, what does a real stretch look like for you? How, how will you measurably work harder? Let's, let's take, for, for example, you, you know, inflation is going to happen economically if we're talking about economic goals, right? So you have to at least beat inflation, right? So if inflation, <laughs> so, so think of it the same way. So is it 10%? Is it, is it 5%? But think of something that feels like, mm, I'm going to have to work for that. But again, it's not out of sight. A hundred percent going from 100 to 200 feels like I'm not sure I can even see that. I'm not sure I can even see how that would happen based on the way we've been operating. Like I would have to, you know, change something systemically about the way we even do business to simply double that. And that's what I mean about the balance in between just out of reach, but not out of sight. Mm-hmm. Would you mind sharing your goals? Sure. One of our goals, <laughs> let me think about that, which ones I want to share publicly. Well, one of our goals this year is to reach 500 or plus uh, youth with our youth program this year, which is a pretty big goal uh, because we last year were doing mostly testing. This year's deployment of the program. And so we're going to do that uh, in a number of different ways. But that's one of our re- major goals this year. Our second goal is for, I think, yeah, I think I could share this one, is for our digital radio platform to reach a certain level of listenership. We have on our cultural development side, a digital radio platform with a mobile app and 24-hour radio and to reach a certain level of listenership. Those are the two goals I'm most focused on right now. Any, uh, any time frame on that one? Yeah, both of those about end of year. <laughs> it was just a joke. Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> 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 See, I can't even help myself. Like, yeah, absolutely. Into you. <laughs> so, um, if you um, got something that you might like to share with the audience today, that's of value that perhaps we haven't talked spoken about. Um, 
I don't know. I, I think we've covered a lot. The, I guess the only thing I would say is uh, start every day fresh with the ideal in your mind that you can achieve what you set out to achieve. But you have to set a direction. You have to set uh, the compass, if you will. One of the, the reasons I do the success thought of the day is that um, it's been said that, uh, you know, our thoughts are more powerful than, you know, our thoughts at the top of the day are more powerful, I think, than 15 cups of coffee right where we start. And so for me, I always think about, I always get this, I'm a visual person, highly visual. I always think about, you know, a major warship or, you know, when we watch those ships that have airplanes taken off from them, I forget the proper name of those ships, but I mean, it's just massive. But think about the fact that at the end of the day, there is a rudder controlling that ship, right? Or a few rudders, right? And so think about the size of those rudders relative to the massive ship and the airplanes and people on that ship. And that's how I think you have to think about your thoughts. Your thoughts are the rudder. And if you get your thoughts right at the top of the day, then uh, you have a much higher probability of achieving the things you want to achieve. And so um, if I leave you with anything, plan your day, plan your day, plan your day, plan your day intently with starting your day with filling your mind with the right things. Right. So let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Um, everyone has a routine. And so whether it's, you know, for me, it's up in the morning, devotionals, uh, Bible study, workout, uh, cup, co- cup of coffee, you know, shower up and then get to my desk for work. And I usually can get to my desk for work after all that by seven o'clock. I'm usually up between four, four thirty. Um, but then nothing, I let nothing in before that time, no emails, no social, nothing, because they will disrupt that morning routine of trying to get my thoughts in the right place, right? It's, it's almost likened to a catwalk. Have you ever seen a catwalk? How narrow a catwalk is when a cat's walking and, and how easily it can be pushed off that catwalk. And so I think you have to do the same in terms of planning your calendar. So whether it's the top of the day for you Midday, if you need a midday meditation or prayer, end the day, whatever it is, calendar it and hold on to a space that you create for yourself to freshen your mind, release out the things that shouldn't be there, put in the things that should be there so you can achieve the things you want to achieve. It's a great answer. I like the fact that you just drop into the conversation that you're up at 4, 4.30. <laughs> yeah. Is there any, uh, any Jocko influence there or not? No, no, I didn't know. That, is that his thing too? Yeah, Jocko Willink's um, up at 4.30, I think, every morning. And he does yeah. his Instagram shot of him working out. But yeah, um, where's that from then? Is that just, just a self-development thing or did you learn that from somewhere? No, it just started. You know what? When I changed jobs in 2006 uh, to go into the... I don't know. Yeah, when I, yeah, when I think when I started working in Delaware... I wanted to go to a new gym. It's so funny how it happened. And the gym opened at uh, five or so, LA Fitness. And if you wanted to be on the machines, man, you had to be there when it opened or you'd be waiting in line. So it was just fine. I'll do what I have. And then I just got used to it, right? It's probably 2003, 2004, something like that. Uh, And I've done it ever since. And you know what I found, Thomas, is I enjoy that morning time before a lot of activities happening. I enjoyed getting to my office in Delaware at seven before the phones and all the ringing and stuff started at eight. And when you manage a team of, you know, a couple hundred people, you need to be available to people. 
and so uh, and so now even that I don't have quite as big a team, it's still a part of my day. It's something when I wake if I if I sleep in and get up at six thirty, I feel like the day has has like I feel like like. 50% of the 50% of the day is gone already. Like I'm catching up. It's seven o'clock. I'm catching up. My God, what's happened? <laughs> Your competition's got a two hour start on you. Exactly. Well, I've, I found it really interesting and fun conversation. So thank you very much for all the value. Oh, thank today. you. Same here. Same here. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, would you like to let the audience know where the best place to find you is? Absolutely. You can go to the corelinksolution.com. And uh, all our conf- all my contact information is there. Or you can follow me anywhere at James Rousseau Senior. So that's James Rousseau S R on the end on all platforms: LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, etc. All right. Well, thank you again, and I wish you all the luck with your charity. I think it's a great thing that you're doing. Thank you so much, Thomas. I appreciate it. I'll speak to you soon, James. Absolutely.